following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. How many of you have been to Italy? Raise your hands. We got some European travelers. That's okay. Proud. I'm not going to make you do anything crazy. All right, now we're going to pie him in the face. No, if you've been to Italy, okay, how about the Sistine Chapel? Anybody been there? We have just maybe one lucky, two lucky contestants. No, multiple. Fantastic. Well, the Sistine Chapel is located in Vatican City, Italy. More precisely, it's in the Apostolic Palace, Apostolic Palace, which is the home of the Pope. Pope Julius II, in 1508, commissioned Michelangelo to paint the entire ceiling of this most honored place. The results of his work are one of the, is one of the most um, uh, greatest demonstrations of Renaissance art. You recognize it. You've seen it. Uh, if you were to go into the chapel and look, he there painted nine scenes from the book of Genesis. On the ceiling, you have creation, you have the fall, you have the flood, and a bunch of other Old Testament references going on and on. The centerpiece is that iconic image of God with his finger reaching down, touching the hand of Adam. Uh, It depicts the image of God being passed into the heart of man. There it is. For his work, Michelangelo was paid the equivalent of $600,000, and due to the prominence of that project, he became the most well-known and celebrated painter of his day. Now, if you're an art buff, I am not. Uh, you all, might also know that Michelangelo famously carved, sculpted the, the uh, sculpture of David and also the Pieta. And in his later years, when he retired, he became a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. That's right. Uh, but if you were to travel to Rome today uh, and look up at the ceiling some 44 feet above your head, you would see 343 figures above you. And if you look carefully enough, you could notice places where the plaster has been painted and covered over uh, where there used to be holes because Michelangelo and his crew hung the scaffolding from the roof. They did not build off of the ground up there. They were hanging from the ceiling, and they've sought to cover that up. But I struggle even to just screw out and screw in a light bulb working overhead. Do you know what I'm talking about? I hate working over my head. These guys did it for, listen carefully, five years. As the story goes, three of the painters who were part of his crew were asked to describe their role in the project. The first painter answered, I'm here to make a living one day at a time. Second painter replied, I'm here to provide for my family. The third painter answered, I'm helping Michelangelo paint the Sistine Chapel. It's the same work, but a different perspective. Let me compare this to how we view parenting. Some are like that first man. We see parenting as nothing more than a job. I'm just getting by one day at a time. I'm trying to keep them alive, right, for all intents and purposes. And one day, hopefully soon, they're going to move out and be gone. Some are like the second man. They see a high value in the family. We're going to circle the wagons. We're going to create a loving and caring environment, which, by the way, if we're not careful, can become an end in itself and can become an idol. But others recognize what parenting truly is. 
I am helping God paint a masterpiece. One stroke at a time, one day at a time, I'm working alongside God himself to instruct, train, and prepare this child for life in the world. We want the best for our kids, don't we? We do. We want the best for them. And so we drop them into athletics early, getting them going with repetition and sport all year long because we may have the next Kobe Bryant or Patrick Mahomes on our hands. We just need to figure it out and get them out there. We push them academically so that hopefully they'll get into a good college and then have a good job and then have a good life. We want them to get ahead and hopefully they will get a scholarship so we don't have to pay for all of that. Uh, we, we run them around town to music lessons and theater performances and Boy Scouts and a host of other extracurriculars trying to make them more well-rounded and cultured and give them some taste of the finer things. We manage and guard their friendships and a thousand other aspects of their lives. But in the end, our primary goal as parents is to see those little hearts love Jesus Christ to see them choose to follow God on their own and live independently as sons and daughters of the King. Parents, you have been commissioned by God to steward those souls allotted to your care into a loving relationship with Him. It's an honorable endeavor, yet it's a weighty and difficult task. Parenting takes no prisoners. (laughs) And parenting humbles Everybody. Even still, even still, we don't like when people correct our parenting, do we? I don't. I don't like people looking into my life and saying, hey, Sean, can we talk to you about your daughter? Or, hey, Sean, we've been noticing a couple things that we wanted to speak into your life on. I immediately wall up. I get defensive, and I don't want to let people in. Why is that? I think it's because every parent is already doing their best. We shield them from sugar and provide them with all sorts of alternative forms of goodness and organic and sugar-free treats. Well, maybe not in my house, but we do that, hormone-free, right? We, we, we hover over their sleepovers, their friend groups, their devices, and we find it difficult to be told that we aren't doing enough or that we aren't doing it well enough. And so we wall off because we think we got this covered. I love them so much, right? I, I, I would give my last drop of blood for them. How could I not be doing a good job in this? So stay out of my world. But no parent is perfect. And no parenting method is perfect. No one's got a corner on this. We need the Word of God to inform our parenting. And we need to be open to hearing from God Himself on the priorities of parenting And we need to be humble enough to listen with open hearts and willing to change as we better understand God's plan for our families. So this morning, we begin a two-week series titled Building Stronger Families, or Building Strong Families. Now, it's a series that's two weeks long. We'll be in Deuteronomy 6 this week, and Robert Dodson will be teaching out of Ephesians 6 next week, and I lost the battle for the title of the series. Right? As you can tell from your handouts... I could name my message because it belongs to me, but I don't own the series. So the series, Building Strong Families, the sermon, Parenting Like a Boss. Okay, there you go. So if you would, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want to challenge your parenting today to get into your kitchen and turn the heat up just a little bit in your family room. So fair warning, 
And it's our prayer that as we evaluate our parenting today, that God would reveal areas of weakness and of sin and that he would do work on our hearts. These verses, while they are directed to parents, are also directed to any person who disciples, who leads, who seeks influence over the next generation. If you're sitting here thinking, well, tune out for two weeks, I'm out, you're wrong. Tune back in right now because this is for every person that has a niece or a nephew, a brother or a sister, every, um, everybody that has a friend who's younger, a youth ministry staff person, a children's worker, even some of that you babysit. And also tune in grandparents because there's massive impact for you in each of these things. The instruction we're giving is simple and it's basic and yet it hits at the very center and core of our very lives and certainly our parenting. Let me read these familiar verses starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I'd like to draw four keys to parenting from these verses. If you begin to apply these you too will be parenting like a boss. Okay, let me just give them to you really quickly and then we'll work through them. Number one, listen carefully. Number two, view God rightly. Number three, love God entirely. And number four, train them deliberately. We'll take them each in order, starting with our first point, listen carefully. Listen carefully. Now, the people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They were released after the plagues. They went to the, to the uh, Dead Sea, the Red Sea, excuse me. They walked across on dry land. They went to Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and now they've been wandering for 40 years, and they are standing, as it were, at the precipice, at the edge of the Promised Land. And God has instructed Moses to come to his people and to give the law once again to them. That is what Deuteronomy is. In the Greek, deutero means second, and namos means law. Deutero, namos means the second law. And in chapter 5, which we won't go there, but we see a recounting of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. The same commandments that were given on Sinai, inscribed in stone by the finger of God himself, so that they cannot be forgotten, and so that they will never be changed. And now in chapter 6, the entire nation is gathered. And Moses rises up, as it were, on a high place to speak to everybody. And in verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, from the youngest to the oldest, from the greatest to the least, from the highest to the lowest, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, all have gathered together to hear a word from God. And Moses stepped forward to give this singular charge. He comes with this declaration. It's an all-inclusive call to every man and woman that calls themselves a child of God. It's as if he is saying, I have but one thing to tell you. One great truth that you need to know. One singular reality by which you must live. This statement is an effort to grab our attention, to wake us up, and to bring us into the current 
and pressing reality that is before us. On September 13th, excuse me, on January 13th, 2018, it was a Saturday morning at 8.10 a.m., every resident on the island of Oahu, that's Hawaii, received the following text message. Did you all get a text message this morning? You did, right? The Amber Alert went out. The government has the ability to jump, drop into our cell phones to send out pending important things. This message hit every single person on the island, 8, 10 a.m. Saturday morning. Ballistic missile threat, stop. Inbound to Hawaii, stop. Seek immediate shelter, stop. This is not a drill. Now, tensions were high between the Trump White House and North Korea, and calculations had already been made, and the people of Hawaii knew that it would take some 30 minutes for a nuclear warhead to come from Korea and hit Hawaii, the first place if you want to damage U.S. soil. Hawaii is no stranger to sneak attacks. Walk back to Pearl Harbor in 1941, and the Japanese attacked there, and so the people of Hawaii rightly responded with terror. They panicked. They called loved ones to say goodbye, they cried, and then they waited. A friend of mine who lives there told me that it was mass pandemonium. People emptied out of stores, came running out of hotels, they were running through the streets, and some even drove to certain highways where the, uh, the road cuts through the, from one side of the island to the other through mountains, and so there, there are these massive tunnels, and they would go into the tunnels to try to seek some shelter from the fallout. My buddy was running errands, he was at Home Depot, he was too far from home to get back in time, and so he called his wife. He instructed her to take the kids, get into the bathtub, try and do your best to cover yourself, and then he told her goodbye. 38 minutes later, another text message came through saying the text was an error. And somebody got fired, I'm sure of it, right? <laughs> But one thing is certain, in that moment, the people of Oahu were focused on one reality, one thing. They were all paying attention. And so it is with this text. God has something to say to you, and he wants your full and undivided attention this morning, your total focus. The topic is that important. It is that central that he calls for every one of us to put aside our distractions and to put our eyes into this text. Do I have your attention? Are you ready to listen? Good. Point number two, view God rightly. View God rightly. Look again at verse four. Moses adds, the Lord is our God The Lord is one. In Hebrew, this is called the Shema. The Shema means to listen or to hear. And this is the most important ritual prayer in the life of every Jew. They would pray it three times every single day. Now, why is it so important? Because in one brief sentence, and in an economy of words, there is a declaration of the nature and the character of God. His name is Yahweh. And he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He is the covenant-keeping God of the nation of Israel. 
He is not made of wood or stone as the man-made idols of the other nations. He is the sovereign commander of the armies of heaven who sits on a great white throne and all of creation obeys his command. He is the exalted king and, and he reigns over the realm of men. He is the absolute and infinite one who alone is to be worshipped. This is the declaration that every Jew made. Yahweh is the one true God. Now look back in your Bibles. I want you to notice the little word in that sentence. It is the word our. He is our God. I love that word. The Lord, Yahweh, is our God. Have you heard better news than this? Can you think of anything better than to know that this God is ours? The eternal, all-powerful, omniscient, sovereign, creator of all things. He is our God. He is a personal God who has condescended to us, revealed himself, and granted us relationship with him. And he's not far off. And he's not disinterested. He is our God. If we fast forward a few generations into the time of the kings in 1 Samuel 5, you don't need to turn there, there is a story where the Israelites fight the Philistines and the Israelites lose. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it to their city and they put it in their temple in the house of Dagon. Dagon was the fish man, fish god. You remember the story maybe, and they come back the next morning and Dagon is laying down prostrate, the text says, before the Lord. And they go, Dagon? And so they grab him, they set him back up on his feet, and they go about their days, and they come back the next day. And same thing, Dagon is laying flat on, uh, in front of the Lord. This time, his head and his hands have been cut off. God does not share his glory with another. In Psalm 96.5, it says, For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. This is our God. The psalmist, looking up from his plight in Psalm 121, (coughs) says, where shall our hope come from? And he's looking to the mountains and to the hills. Where will it come from? In verse 1 it says, "Our, our hope and our help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. This is our God. The Apostle Paul echoes this in Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is our God. And this is where parenting starts. It starts with a high view of God. It starts with a right view of God. A recognition that we are under his mighty hand, that his ways are right, that his instructions and his commands are to be followed. In Deuteronomy 5 and 6, God is described as powerful and glorious. He is the promise keeper who is rich in loving kindness. He is the deliverer, rescuer, and savior of his people. He is worthy of all worship and he sits on his throne as the righteous judge. And now Moses is here at the precipice, at the edge of the promised land, up on a high place, speaking to the nation of Israel in front of everybody, and he's setting priority, and he's setting the direction for their lives, for their families, and for their nation as they moved into the promised land. And he begins, step one, high view of God. Listen carefully, parents. You will never be able to train them to be like God, to submit to God's rule, 
and to follow God's ways unless you know who God is. That leads us to point number three. Love God entirely. Listen carefully. View God rightly. Love God entirely. And now we come to the heart of the matter. Verse five. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We know this to be the great and foremost command of the law, the center of all religion. Jesus himself repeats this in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And then in the Gospel of John, pushing Peter in the very last chapter of John's Gospel, he asks him three times as if he's driving the the nail deeper into his heart, do you love me? Certainly that is the question, isn't it? Do you love me? Because you can show up to church every Sunday, you can go to your community group, you can volunteer to serve, you can have all of the routine of Christianity down. You can tell your kids that they need to love and obey God, but all this is secondary to you and to your heart. To the men in this room, do you love Jesus most? More than your wife, more than your career, more than your hobby, more than your kids? Do you love him more than the hidden lust and the secret desires of your hearts? To the women in this room, do you love Jesus most? More than your husband, more than your children, more than your picture of a perfect life? Is he your all, your sufficiency? Do you find contentment and identity in Christ over and above your identity as a mom or as a wife? And so we get to the root issue. You can't parent your children, you can't lead that small group, you can't disciple that young person if Christ is not all to you, because all you're teaching is hypocrisy. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. You can hide who you really are from your boss. You can shield it from the other moms at co-op. You can even guard it from your small group leader at church, but you cannot hide it from God. He knows your heart. And stay with me, you cannot hide it from your children because they know the real you. There's a lot of talk these days about why so many abandon the church at 18. Why so many leave the things of God behind and deconstruct their faith. What's wrong with our churches? And we're, we're talking about this and looking at this. Some high 70% of kids walk away. What is going on with our churches? What, what do we need to do to fix the problem? Certainly, the church needs to respond to that. But can I help you here? There is no greater reason that teenagers leave the church and abandon their faith than the hypocrisy that they see in their own homes. You can tell them how to follow God's ways. You can preach obedience till you're blue in the face, but they are watching you. They know the real you. They're sitting in the back seat listening as you fight. They can hear you yelling at each other in the next room. They see what you watch on TV. They know if your Bible sits on the shelf all week just to make its weekly trip out to church. There is nothing that confuses a parent more, excuse me, a child more than the hypocrisy of their own 
parents. Friend, we must take steps today for the sake of our children and for the sake of our own souls. It's front and center. It's the crux of it all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It flows from the heart. It encapsulates the whole being. It holds nothing back. It gives all to him. Notice in the text, right there in verse 5, that little word, all, repeated three times as if to emphasize, to prioritize. Love is raised, as it were, to the third power, showing its supremacy, its completeness. There are no competitors, no rivals, no seconds. It is total. It is complete. There are no rogue desires, no secret sins, no other loves. All are rooted out and thoroughly abandoned. There is only God, and He alone is worthy. He demands our complete attention. He demands our total worship. This is the testimony that all must have. It is the command that we all must follow. And if you want to know why, refer back to point number two. It's because of who he is. The God of Israel, by his own power and because of his loving kindness, rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He released them from bondage, drew them to himself, and gave them life. So it is with us. He has saved us by his own power and because of his loving kindness. He has rescued us from the slavery of sin and its eternally destructive power and has drawn us near and has drawn near to us paying the penalty for our sin and making us alive together with Christ so that we could be his both now and forever. Hear, O Christian of Faith Bible Church, and listen to the declaration. This is the one true God, and He is to be loved and worshipped and obeyed. Is there a question in your family about what you love most? If I was to ask your wife or your husband, if I was to ask your kids, what does dad love most? What would they say? What does mom love most? Our home is the true indicator of where our love truly lies. Three simple tests to determine your affections, your mouth, your calendar, and your wallet. If Christ is first, then he will be on our lips. If Christ is first, then we will spend time, and it will be reflected there. If Christ is first, it will be reflected also in how we spend our money. You see, love for Christ cannot be manufactured. It cannot be contrived. For either you love Christ and your family is oriented around him, or it's not. That's the crux of the message, and it is the key to parenting. It's not about self-help. You don't need 10 tips to be a better parent. You don't even really need those 15 books on the shelf that you promised to read before they turn 18, although they're good and they're helpful. It's about this one thing. This singular priority, and I hate to boil parenting down to a very simplistic piece here, but that's what God does in Deuteronomy. This singular priority, the direction that your family moves in will be dictated by those things that you love and those things that are precious to you. Now, I went to the University of California at Los Angeles for my undergraduate degree. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I have support on both sides. I got some tokenagas over here as well. Okay, good. This is good. I haven't had support in any service. Uh, Haley and I, my, uh, my youngest daughter, are going to see UCLA basketball this Thursday night. They're playing Arizona State at Pauley Pavilion. And uh, last, yesterday, Arizona State played University of Arizona. University of Arizona is ranked seventh in the country. 
Arizona State is in battling, and at the very last play of the game, half-court buzzer beater to win the game, to upset them. And now they come to Pauley to play UCLA. We're going to be there. Can't wait. Anyway, why do you think, and I didn't tell you this, but my girls are UCLA fans, both of them. Kind of odd, don't you think? That, like, I would be a UCLA fan, they would also, three of us in the same house? Kind of crazy. And I started thinking, why, why is that? And I thought, well, maybe it's because UCLA has a robust athletics program. Um, they're fourth in the country right now in basketball. I mean, we could start there. Um, maybe it's because they have more national championships than their rival across town. Um, it could be because of the quality of their academics. I mean, to get into UCLA right now, you have to have a base, an average of a 4.18 GPA, where USC is a 3.7. Measly, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because UCLA has produced 25 Nobel Prizes and SC is a paltry 10. Maybe it's the campus location. I don't want to say too many things, right? We're not get into this, but campus location, beautiful Westwood versus the dangerous, dark, decrepit South Central LA. I don't know. Or the annual cost, 35K to go to UCLA, 85K to go to SC. I mean, there's so many things we can look at. We won't, I won't bore you with it right now. A lot of things we could talk about. Um, we don't even need to mention the NCAA sanctions against USC, stripping them of their national championship in football because they're a bunch of cheaters. Okay, we're not even going to talk about that. Don't even go there. If we put those things aside, why do you think both of my daughters are UCLA fans? It's because their father is because I talk about it, because I have a fond affection for it, and so it is with our families. What we love most is evident, and it's seen in our homes. If we love entertainment, the TV is always on. If we love sports, then Sundays become optional during travel ball. If we overvalue family, then church plays second fiddle to those family events. And if we parent out of fear, then we never let them out of our sight. Can't let them watch it or them watch it. I've got to always be around them. Jesus speaking about this topic of love narrows it down even more to a bullseye target when in Revelation 2, he defines it as our first love. And it gets real close to the heart. Our first intimate primary love is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just ask you, every heart in the room, have you lost your first love and drifted from nearness to Christ? Even now in this moment, do you feel a wandering? Have you succumbed to some sinful temptation? Are you just a little apathetic and cold to the Lord? Jesus himself, like he did in Revelation 2, calls you back this morning. Even in this moment right now, confess your sin and give your heart back to him. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we've seen that we must listen carefully and that we must view God rightly and that we must love God entirely. And that takes us to number four. We must train them deliberately. Train them deliberately. Look back at verse six. These words which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Forever and always, the commands of God are to be placed close to the heart, ever to be memorized, meditated on, and lived out. And it's here that we see the, this command to bring to the next generation. Look at the first phrase of verse 7. 
you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Here the instruction is given to mom and to dad. Here the order of operations is laid out. The burden of responsibility falls to the parents. Notice he doesn't give the command to the government or the educational system. He doesn't give it to the culture. It's not even given to teachers or coaches or youth leaders. The duty and responsibility rests squarely on the shoulders of the parents. This is a weighty task. It's a lifelong assignment given to every parent, ready or not. But if you look through your Old Testament and then you thumb through your New Testament, you don't find a whole lot on parenting. Have you noticed that? It's strangely quiet. There are some Proverbs that give truisms on parenting. Uh, there's Ephesians 6 that we'll look at next week. There's Colossians 3. And then there's a smattering of other passages like this one. But the instructions are limited. It's kind of like getting a piece of furniture from Ikea that you take out of the box and all the pieces fall out. And then you, there's 194 pieces and there are no instructions. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Even with the instruction manual, that thing is just a battle. Um, but that's kind of how parenting is. It's similar to that. We're not given step-by-step instructions. You know why? Because if we were, we'd follow them legalistically in a way that wouldn't be helpful for our hearts. So God doesn't lay it out because each parent is individual and has individual personalities. Each couple does as well in how they're going to parent. Each child has to be handled individually as well. So there are no rules and laws to this. There are just general principles given to us. And three such principles are found in these verses. Your training should be intentional, it should be natural, and it should be continual. Let me show this to you in the text. Look back at verse 7 at that command. He says that you shall teach them diligently to your sons. We'll call this intentional parenting. The first thing we see in our training of children is that it must have some proactive planned aspect. The word for diligent in the Hebrew Bible was the word used for sharpening a saw or sharpening a blade. So I thought I'd bring this blade here for you. Um, it's literally... You should have seen me walking in with this thing. Like, okay, I'm coming. And some of you are, are concealed carry people. I'm going to start just hanging this thing on my waist as I go out to the store. What's up? How's it going? Um, but this is a machete. And uh, my, when we moved into the house that we're currently in, Luana, the lady that lived there before us, late 60s, living there by herself, had this machete. And I'm like, what does she need it for? And I thought, well, that's what she needed it for, just for protection. But it was free of rust, and the edge was very sharp. And so I've taken this machete and used it multiple times. With the right application of force, you can take down palm fronds or large branches or other things, and it's just a great tool. Um, so don't get in my way, okay, this morning. So this word in the, in the Hebrew is about sharpening the saw, and it's about taking a stone, as it were, and applying the right amount of pressure with the right frequency at just the right pace at the right angle and working this blade to sharpen the edge over and over again force is applied in a perfect deliberate way to get the blade perfectly sharp now as a parent which one of these are we don't answer you might be tempted to think that you're the blade I'm sharp. I'm out in front of my kids. I am hacking away, protecting them from all evils and all ails. 
I'm carving a pathway to their future. I'm opening up opportunity. I will protect them, and I will be their Savior, and I will lead the way to their future life in Christ. The phrase is helicopter, snowplow, bubble wrap parenting. We don't let others babysit our kids. We don't let others influence them. We control all of it as if we can determine their hearts and their future. Unfortunately, in the Hebrew, training your children makes you as a parent the rock. The dull, lifeless, hard-headed force. And you and I are called as parents into the life of our children at the right time and with the right amount of effort and with the right words to help to sharpen them and prepare them so that they would be children, not of our family, but children of God, walking independently with Him. So we would prepare them to be able to cut through the temptations and the trials and the circumstances of life so that they can make their way through the jungle we call the world and honor Christ on their own. That's intentional parenting. It requires forethought. And the diligent teaching of our sons and our daughters requires a plan. I think I'm just going to keep this thing up here for the rest of my message. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. You've got health care? Most, yes. You are saving for a house, some of you. You have a retirement strategy, hopefully. Have you gone on a family vacation? Many have. Each of these requires forethought. Each requires an intentional plan. And the same is true with parenting. You have to have a plan. You have to have some intentionality in it. And the mantle of responsibility for this falls squarely on the shoulders of the Father. We'll see this next week in Ephesians 6. It is to the men that God has placed the mantle of leadership for the home. It is your task, Dad. It's your duty, and if the house is out of order, or the finances are messed up, or the kids are rebellious, or there's spiritual apathy in your family, then do not look to another, because you are the root cause. You are the high watermark, and as you go, so goes your family. And so we sit here, already defeated under the weight of all of this, and we go, I don't even know what to do, how to start. I, there's so much of my baggage in my past. I'm like halfway through, two-thirds through, all the way through. I'm now talking about grandparenting. I don't know that I'm doing this right. For those of you at the beginning stage, can I just tell you this? Spend as many times a week as you can in family worship. We called it Big Story because when Zoe was little, we had these big books, four of them, Jonah, Noah, Creation, I think David and Goliath, these big books, and she would go, Daddy, Big Story, because it was a big book. And so we, our time is called big story time, okay? She's 18. It's still big story time. The days are, are fleeting, as you know, and those high school years come, and it's tough to get time together with them, and then one day they're gone. So my encouragement to you is today, tonight, open a book and read with them. Jesus Storybook Bible, my all-time favorite. The Action Bible. Open something and read with them, and then when you're done reading, pray with them. You don't need to... You don't need to be a seminary student or a pastor, 
to just sit with your family and talk to them about the things of God. Intentional. Get, get, make it a priority to get to church for both services, to get to Wednesday nights, to be about the local church. These are good ways to intentionally teach them. Deuteronomy 6 tells us not only to teach our children intentionally, but secondly, to teach them naturally. Look at verse 7. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. It's not just in the formal context of church or when you sit down for family worship that the heavens open and the cherub come down and there they are singing and it's like, let me impart these words of wisdom to you. It never works that way. It's in the blank spaces. It's in all of life. It's when you sit down, he says, when you walk, when you're lying down, when you rise up. Because you love God with all your heart and these words are bound up in your heart, it will naturally come out of you into everyday life. Zoe, who made the cloud? I used to ask her when she was two, sitting in my Toyota Tacoma that was a two-seater, so she was seated next to me in her car seat, like a little bubble. Zoe, who made that cloud? God did. And Zoe, who made those hills over there? God did. And Zoe, who made the sky and the sun? God did. I shared this first hour with her sitting in here, and she walked out there, and I heard them all saying to her, Zoe, all of her friends are now, she's, she's doomed. Who made the clouds, Zoe? And uh, as, as a note, I negotiated with my girls when they were little to pay them each a dollar every time I mentioned them in a service and preaching, and I haven't changed my rates. But, uh, so they're going to do well today, but I might need to up that a little bit. Anyway, what was the point? As we're driving, as we're going, doing errands, I'm trying to point her to the Lord. And then in that moment, I'm looking at the sky and the sun and the clouds and praising and worshiping God. It's an awesome thing. As they get older, we're looking for conversations about friendships, about the opposite sex, about their desires, and all that's going on in their lives. Sports and schooling and sex in every facet of life. It's not just intentional, it's also natural. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're looking for opportunities. And you're doing it in a very imperfect way because you never know what to say and you never know how to say it. You open your mouth with a prayer, Lord, please give me something, and you speak. Thirdly, he says, do it continually. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Jews took this very literally. They would write the Shema, they would place it into a small wooden box and they would bind it on their hands and bind it on their foreheads into a little wooden box tied onto their left wrist, into a little wooden box tied onto their forehead and they would walk around because they wanted it to be there. It was a very wooden interpretation. And you may think it's silly, but we have taken verse 9 very literally also. Write it on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. How many people here have a framed verse in the entryway of their house? Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We've done this. At our house, we've got a stanza from an old poem written by a missionary named C.T. Studd. And the stanza says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Why do we do these things? It's a statement. It's a statement to our hearts. It's a statement to our children. It's a statement to everyone who enters that this home is about the things of God. That's an intentional process. It's a natural process. And listen, that's a continual thing that they see. In all of life, we are keenly aware and focused on the training of our children. It was dinner time one night, and the doorbell rang. My girls were in the kitchen preparing dinner, and in comes a young lady who's looking for some counsel from Tracy and I. 
She sat in our kitchen and broke down, sobbing uncontrollably about the decisions she had made that contributed to a series of very unfortunate events in her life. Now, we're very careful about what our girls hear and what they're exposed to. And we pretty much always go into a separate private room because they don't need to hear that. That's gossip. And they don't need to be about those things and carry those weights in any case. It has nothing to do with them. But we made the decision split second in that moment to leave them in the room. And as she's crying and pouring out her heart, my two daughters, I'm watching them, tried to be absorbed into the furniture. Part of the crew, part of the ship. It was like one of those moments. They heard every word. After the young lady left, we sat down as a family to have dinner, and we talked about it. What led her to this point? What bad decisions did she make? What bad thinking did she have? Was she guarding her heart? Was she listening to her desires more than the word of God? Was she disregarding counsel? And then we opened our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in verse 11, we read about the disobedience of Israel in the Old Testament. It says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. So the Old Testament failings of Israel now stands as an example, so we wouldn't do the same things. And by principle, we're saying, this happened to her. Learn from that and don't follow that. Be careful what you do. Be careful who you give your heart to and how you live. And just because they're church kids, and just because we're a church family, and we are so prone to self-righteousness, I read the next verse. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The reminder that we're all sinners. We talked about the struggle that we all have with sin, and that we are all in desperate need of the grace of God That's intentional training that happens in the natural flow of life, given in a continual way. And that's our job as parents. It's not always so pronounced as it was that night, but the opportunities are there. And more often than not, we feel inadequate, right? We are insecure with our Bible knowledge and our abilities. We don't know what to say or how to say it, and that's perfectly fine. God did not give your children theologians or seminary graduates, or, or pastors to parent them. He gave them you, and he gave them me, because in our brokenness, God expects and has given us all the tools we need in his word to rightly train them. It's not a mistake. It's in the messiness of life that all of this process happens. He didn't make a mistake. You're there for a reason, to sharpen them all the way into adulthood. And I want to say publicly in front of all of you, I'm an elder at Faith Bible Church. I'm the college pastor here at at Faith, Faith Bible Church again. And friends, my wife and I are rookies at parenting. We don't know what we're doing. We make mistakes regularly. We are in one big experimental mess in our home Every day going, well, let's just add a little bit of this. And say, see what, oh, no, let's try something else over here. But I can tell you that I love Jesus Christ, and I want to love him more. And my wife loves Jesus Christ, and she wants to love him more. And we want to honor him with our lives. And so we're living, and we're praying, and we're hoping that God would use these meager, broken, even sinful efforts to sharpen our kids. And we're clinging to his promises and trying our best, trusting and trying to take advantage of every resource available. Hey, listen, this is not going to be easy, and you know it's not easy. And if you're living in the wake of failed parenting, and you look back and think, that's too late, I've already ruined it. I've already 
and, and you're, or you're halfway through or two-thirds through or you're a grandparent looking back going, what did I do? And you're in this moment and this message has brought the guilt and the weight down your shoulders, then we need to free you of that by the grace of God because at the cross, Jesus paid for all of that. And the intent of this message and hearing these things is not to weight us down further. That weight has been thrown off and borne by Christ at Calvary. We are free. And Paul said in Philippians 3, I don't look back to the things in the past. They're gone. I am pressing forward with my eyes fixed on Christ and taking advantage of the hours and the opportunities that I have today to minister to those kids or that small group or my grandkids. Don't whip yourself. Jesus already paid it all. Today, we are free in his grace to live. And when God looks at us, he sees only Christ. Oh, it's so good. It's so good to remember that in our parenting. We need to be reminded of that. And so wherever you are in that process, maybe today is a day to reset to come back, to take some new steps and to get back on course. Sit down with your spouse and develop a plan. Your kids are not here forever. The foundation of their life is being poured right now. Don't miss what one author calls the age of opportunity. They need you now more than ever to be the guiding force in their lives to correct them and to point them in the right direction. So let me wrap this. Listen carefully. View God rightly. Love God entirely and train them deliberately. You, parent, are a partner with God himself as he paints a masterpiece. See your role, embrace your role, and get after it. And I just want to encourage you, you're not alone in this. FBC is a great place filled with godly men and godly women, godly moms and godly dads. Seek counsel if you need some help. We have an amazing young families ministry called Rooted. We have an amazing ministry called Moms by Grace. We have so many resources available and devoted to you to get help in parenting. Please find those things and be about them. Okay? Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the clarity with which you speak to us. We recognize that we have fallen short in so many ways. And yet in this moment we come once again to the cross. Once again, we come to our Lord Jesus and see him and recognize that he paid it all. We are so thankful, Father, that because of his work, you see not our sin and not our failings. You see only Christ. So would you help us to set new direction even today to be better parents, uh, more gospel-centered parents, parents that love Christ first. Help us and help our families in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.